If you have your Bible's electronic devices, you can click to turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, and then we're going to use Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And so I... I, uh, I so I've taught you this principle a lot here that the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself because the commentaries that we buy, and they're good, and, and, but, they're, but they're written by men and women. And so the best commentary is an errant word of God, which is Scripture. And so that's why I use Scripture as a commentary on Scripture itself. And I'm not saying commentaries aren't, aren't good. They are good. But I just want to remind you, they're still written by men and women. And so we will go by the errant word of God. And so that's why I always use Scripture to, to help explain Scripture. And so we've been in this series, and actually we're finishing this series up this weekend on 1 Thessalonians. And we've been walking verse by verse. And we've been looking at the church, and the church is a place of. And so this weekend, we're looking at a church is a place, is a, is a, positive, is a positive place. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at end-time theology, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture. And, and so we spent a lot of time on that because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's the classic text on the rapture, the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. And so we use Matthew chapter 24 as a commentary on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's where Jesus is talking, and Jesus is talking about the second coming. I mean, saying you're not going to know the day, you're not going to know the time. It's going to come like a like a thief in the knife. It's in, in the night. It's going to come quickly. And but he said you you will be able to determine the seasons, just like the changing of the seasons uh, here in the state of Colorado. You'll you, you'll be able to know. You'll be able to see. And so we looked at the identifiers that Jesus gave us to be aware of. And so one of the things that he said, he talked about this issue of apathy that people are going to be indifferent to the gospel. They're going to be indifferent to church. They're going to develop some apathy. But then he said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, which caught all of our attention, he said, as, as lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. And so what he is saying that in the season, as the second coming of Jesus Christ comes closer and closer, and then we see in the world, we see in the, our country, that lawlessness begins to multiply more and more, that all of a sudden some Christians, their love is going to grow cold. And they're going to they're gonna become kind of indifferent because they're seeing everything that's going on and, and they can't make sense of it. And so Paul comes along and tries to help this church understand that, that a church is supposed to be a positive place. And he's trying to help them to understand about this issue of the danger of what happens when your love begins to grow cold. Now listen, these principles that we're going to look at, yes, they were written into the local church. But I just want you to know this morning, these principles works for every area of your life. They not only work for your relationship to the Lord, your relationship to the church, but guess what? They work in, in marriage. They work in, 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 in a business. They work in other areas about this issue of the danger that can happen when your love begins to grow cold. Because we know this, right? Human love wears out. Human love wears out, and that's why we have to connect with God, and that's why we need a God where his love never wears out. His love never wears out for us. And so I just have some questions that I started processing through this text and, and looking at and saying, you know what, well, what happens? What happens, and why does our love, why does our love grow cold? What happens to people between their, their wedding day and the day that all of a sudden they look at their partner like their partner is a burden to them. And just a roommate, just someone to coexist with. What happens to that person 
between the day they start a new job that they're passionate and they're excited about, and they cannot believe this is going to be their career, and the day that all of a sudden that job is a burden, and they wish they'd had another profession, they'd wish they'd done something else. What, what, what happens to that individual that has a, has a child between the day they have that, that child and the day all of a sudden they look at that child like that child's a burden to them? What happens to that believer that meets Christ and so excited about the forgiveness of sin and so excited about what God is doing in their life and they're engaged in the local church and they're engaged in him, with him to all of a sudden that day that it's like following Christ is a burden. Connecting with a local church is difficult and a burden. Just what happens to that? And so Paul is concerned for this church that he planted there in Thessalonica that all of a sudden that they would have a history to where their love would grow cold. Their love would grow cold for God. Their love would grow cold for one another. And, 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 um, and so he writes these words, and then we're going to use we're going to use Revelation chapter 2 as well. And he says, so, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. He said, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly, I love this, very highly in love. And he's talking about this issue of a relationship, very highly in love. Because of their work, be at peace among yourselves, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all, the whole body. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here's a huge warning. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. So Paul begins talking to this church about their attitude, talking about this church about not be, becoming critical, talking about this church, pursuing what is good, loving one another, respecting one another, and all of those things. You know what? Uh, when you look at this, Paul is talking about their attitude, and Paul is trying to help them to understand how to maintain a proper attitude in every area of life with other believers, with leaders, with, with, with their circumstances, and holding on to what is good, the gospel and doctrine and all of those things. Because if we're not careful, we have a tendency to be critical, right? I mean, the great theologian Red Skelton, uh, he said this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. The younger generation like, who's Red Skelton? Look on YouTube. <laughs> That's what YouTube is for. Red Skelton, said, Red Skelton actually said this. He said, all men make mistakes. Husbands just find out a little bit sooner. That's really true, right? And I, I would like sometimes reword that and say, you know what? All men, all men make mistakes. Pastors just find out a little bit sooner than everybody else, right? Because you cannot make everybody happy. And so Paul is talking about this issue that church should be a positive place. He gives us three things. And, and I think these three things are exciting, especially when we get to Revelation chapter 7. So here, let's just walk through this. The first thing is this. We should have a, pos a posture of respect for our leaders. 
And I don't think this just has to do with pastors. I think this has to do, yes, with the local church, Bible study, uh, Bible study leaders and deacons and elders and pastors and, and anybody that's in leadership. But I think it's also anybody in leadership because Paul talked to other places about this same issue. And so verses 12 and 13, here's what Paul says again. He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And so we live in a time, right? We live in a culture. If we're just honest, we live in a culture and we live in a time that it's hard for people to show respect to anybody that's in leadership. I mean, it's anybody in leadership. So this last week, I took out like a legal pad because I'm still old school. I use a legal pad and pen and paper, actually a fountain pen. That's how old school I am. <laughs> You'll have to YouTube that too. And so, uh, <laughs> and I, I listed, I just, I just asked the question, why is it that it's so hard for this culture, this group of people to show respect to anybody that's in leadership? And I think there's several. I think one, it just goes against the spirit of the world that we just don't give respect to anyone. I mean, we are so accustomed, right, of making public fun of anybody that's in leadership, ridicule with memes and social media and some of those things. And oh, and guess what? We think it's our right if we disagree with them, right? That we can ridicule them, we can make fun of them. That's one of the things that led me, and this is just for free. I didn't say it last night, may not even should say it today, but... but <laughs> That's what led me into a social media fast. I've been on a social media fast for 40 days because I started noticing social media was stifling the spirit in me when I saw what Christians would, would post about political leaders that they disagreed with, hoping one day they'll burn in hell, hoping bodily harm will come because I'm pretty sure that is not the heart of God. I am pretty sure that God desires to see all men, all women saved. And it was just stifling the spirit. So I think one of the things is this. Leaders are just targets for our community. And we think it's our right just to publicly annihilate them or, or degrade them. Another thing is this is because so many leaders have violated our trust. I mean, when you look at that, you realize there's some real hurt and there's some real pain. And some of it is, that's what the media always highlights, right? We always hear the stories of the pastor, right? The pastor that embezzled a lot of money, had the affair, lived the lavish lifestyle, preached in $1,000 tennis shoes, wore $10,000 hoodies, had all of those things, you know, used church funds. We always hear about that pastor. That's always in the media, right? What you don't hear about is the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pastors who just faithfully served him. We always hear the story about the police officer that did something that he or she should not have done. And that gets all over the press, right? And what we don't hear is the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of police officers, men and women, that have just served faithfully, just done the right thing. And some of it is, is because of what's in front of us. And another thing is this, that, that people push back, is because leaders sometimes correct and admonish you. They just correct and admonish you. I, I think of this story. It's one of my favorite stories, Luke chapter 4, 
Jesus, uh, Jesus is being tempted, you know, after, the, after in the wilderness he's being tempted by Satan. He goes from there. He goes into the old synagogue church in Nazareth. I've been there, uh, probably going to be there again in a few weeks. And, and so he went, he went into that synagogue. He opens up the scrolls, Isaiah 61, and he, he made the I am statements, I am God. So the people are confused. Like, Aren't this Joseph's son? Who is this guy? I mean, I thought he was a carpenter. And then Jesus pressed in. And you know what Jesus dealt with next? This is the first sermon, by the way. It's really important. It was one of his first sermons. And then you know what he, you know what he talked about? Racism. And he talked about the Jews that didn't like the Gentiles. And they got so angry that he corrected them that they grabbed him. They took him to Mount Precipice. I've walked that. And they, they took him to the brow of Mount Precipice, and they were going to throw him off. And you can stand there, and you can see it would be immediate death. And the Scripture says he walked right through them, having nothing more to do them. He went on his own way. That's why I think Paul says in verse 19, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, don't stifle the Spirit. Do not stifle the spirit in your life and do not stifle the spirit in somebody else's life with criticism and, and, and maligning someone and slander and some of those other things. When you look at this issue, don't stifle the spirit, it literally is to take cold water and throw it on a fire. It's just to quench something out. And Paul is trying to help them to understand that, less, guess what, when someone speaks a word into your life, Test it, see what is good, and hang on to it. The second thing is this. We should be patient with one another. We should understand, guess what? None of us are perfect. And we should learn to be patient with one another. Verse 14 says, And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursues what is good for one another and for all. And so when you look at this, Paul is trying to help them to understand, do not become mean-spirited. Do not become critical of what is going on. In other words, come to the place to where you understand and you pursue what is good and you pursue what is good for all. When you look at this issue, you realize that this issue, and it's talked about in Scripture over and over, this issue of slander and maligning someone and criticizing someone, a lot of people say was well, really not that harmful. And yet scripture says it, it, it quenches the spirit in someone else's life. I, I was with a man and he's retired now and we, we were just hanging out having lunch and had a really successful career. And I just simply asked him, say, when you look back over your career, what do you think? He goes, you know what, Charlie, I loved what I did, but you know what sucked the life out of me? Dealing with people. And some of you know that, right? Just dealing with people, no matter what I did, somebody was upset, somebody was angry. Whether it was a patient, whether it was a client, whether it was someone that worked for me or whatever, it seems like it just sucked the life out of me, just the criticism. And sometimes we think it's harmless. I will never forget, it was a few years ago, and my wife, my wife is a nurse, and, and so she doesn't tell anybody that she's like a pastor's wife, and that used to offend me. <laughs> I'm like, What? Are you ashamed of what I do? And she's, no, it just changes everything. If I tell them I'm a pastor's wife, it like changes everything. And so uh, she had been witnessing to a nurse, and the nurse got to the place, and the nurse said, hey, I think I want to come to church. And so my wife says, good. And she had no idea she was a pastor's wife. And so she says, great, why don't you come to church with me? I, you know what? You can sit with me. I'll pick you up. And she goes, really? What church do you go to? And she told her, Fellowship the Rockies. And she goes, oh, no, I could not go there. I got a friend. She's been going there 10 years. And she's told me every bad decision that pastor has made. Yeah. 
Yeah, she even wonders he's being led of God. And so sometimes we think, listen, sometimes we think criticism is harmless, and it is not. It will stifle, listen, it will stifle the spirit. It will hurt people. And that's why Paul said, church, guess what? Church should be a positive place. It should be a place to where we're, we live at peace among yourselves. And you warn those who are idle. You comfort the discouraged. You, you help the weak is what Paul is trying to help them understand. You be patient. You be patient with everyone. And you do not repay evil for evil. You understand this. You always try to, to love one another, be kind to one another. If, if you life journal with us, then you know we just recently life journaled through, through Psalm chapter 50. In Psalm chapter 50, Jesus is speaking into this church. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You, you, you go down to the tabernacle. You offer your sacrifices. You give of your tithes and offerings. And then you take my word and you fling it. I love that word. You fling it behind your back. And you malign and you slander one another. And then, Jesus, then God spoke a, a word into their life of why that's dangerous, why that's difficult. The third and the last thing is this, is we should be positive in all circumstances. We should be positive in all circumstances. This is what Paul's talking about. A church should be a positive place. A church should be known of, with positive people because it's part of our, our, our testimony. And so Paul is trying to help them understand how not to fall out of love with God, with church, and one another. And like, I'm like I've told you, these principles work in marriage. These pr principles work in relationships. These principles work in, in, the, in the local church. And so he gives them some imperatives. He gives them some commands. And this is what he says. Verse 16, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecy. But test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. And so he says, this will keep you, right? This will keep you in love with God, in love with people. This will help you to be able to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I just wonder, and I've been wondering as we, as we walk through this, was Paul remembering back to the church he started in Ephesus? And the church he started in Ephesus, Jesus writes about in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. But Paul rolled into to Ephesus to plant a church. He meets these 12 guys. He takes these 12 guys. He leads these 12 guys to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit falls. They speak in tongues. Miracles are happening. And then these 12 guys, what starts out with these 12 guys, um, radically changes Ephesus. Ephesus was like a major port city of their time. It was an important city. And all of a sudden, these 12 guys came, uh, were on fire for God. And with these 12 guys, what started out with 12, they, ra they radically changed. They radically changed Ephesus. And Paul stayed there for three years. And after Paul was there for three years and, and got the foundation of the church, he put Timothy, his spiritual son, in place. And then P Timothy pastored that church. And as they turned this city upside down, I mean, there was like, there was like um, an economic rebellion in the city. This church exploded to the point that when people were coming to Christ, they no longer frequented the businesses they did before meeting Christ. Businesses were going out of business. And the city got angry. And God moved in a miraculous way, but something happened to this church, and they fell out of love with him. And I just, I just wonder, 
when Paul wrote into the church in Thessalonica, was he thinking about this church, this other church that he planted, and said, I got to tell this church that they're going to be tempted to fall out of love with God and one another. And so here, we'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll make some, some points. And verse, verse 1, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, he says, write to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So the angel, just real quickly, that's the pastor. That was just, that was just, that was Revelation way of saying, okay, so the, the angel is, is the pastor. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We don't have enough time for the golden lampstands, but the one who walks through, that's Jesus. And so what he's saying, guess what? Jesus has your pastor in his hand. He has the church in his hand. Jesus is the ultimate pastor of the church, the leader. And so he goes on. Verse, 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 verse 2. So he gives them the good news and the bad news. A lot of times, what? We lead with the bad news, right? When we're upset with someone, we lead with the bad. We tell them what they're doing wrong. Not Jesus. Jesus started with the good. He's going to, you're just going to see this. This is what you're doing right. This is, what you, this is what you're doing wrong. And this is what you need to change. So we're going to look at that. So verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have, you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for, for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. Good for you. This is what you've done right. Verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Your love has grown cold. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he didn't say he hated the Nicolaitans. God does not hate people. He hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. That is really important in our culture and this time for us to understand. And then he goes on and says, verse 7, Let anyone who has ears to hear, ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so I've told you the book of Revelation is twofold. One is tries to help us understand Jesus is worthy of our worship. And Jesus is worthy of our worship when we go through hardship, when we go through persecution, when we go through difficulty. But he also lays out a timeline for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ. And so the problem with the church in Ephesus is this. They started off great. And they, I mean, they, their, their passion for God was white hot and they were on fire for God, but something happened and their love grow, grew cold. In other words, they were just going through the motions. I mean, they were, they were going through the motions. And, and so he said, this is what you're doing right. Verses two and three, one more time. He says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have, have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. So he leads with the good news. He says, so here's the good news. These are some of the good things that you have done. You, you, you've, you've excelled in doctrine. You've hung on to doctrine. You, you have sound doctrine. You've hung on to the gospel. And because of that, you stood against two groups of people. You stood against two groups of people. The first groups of people that they had to stand against are the legalists. Now, I don't know if you know anything about legalists, but legalists are those, those Christians that, that, they, that there was a group of people in their time 
that, that were Christians, and they were saying the way to, to get God to love you, you have to, you have to satisfy, you have to fulfill, fulfill the law. And so the legalists, their focus is always on rules, right? Uh, you, do, you do the rules. Oh, by the way, you do our rules, you'll be okay. You just do our rules, and if you don't do our rules, then you're, you're, you're just not okay. And so they like rules, and they like regulations. They like systems. They feel comfortable with that. But can I just tell you this? If, when rules become your God, when you worship your rules, you will have no grace, you'll have no mercy, you'll have no forgiveness, and you'll have no love for anyone. Because what you're in love with is your rules. And so he stood against this. But then there was another group of people that were on the opposite end of the spectrum in this community, in this church. They would be called the liberals. Where the, where the, where the legalists had rules upon rules upon rules, the liberals, the liberals, they had like no rules. I mean, you know what? God's a forgiving God. God's a loving God. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. It doesn't matter the choices you make. God will forgive you. Look at this, verse 6. He highlights, he highlights a group of people. He says, you do not... You, you do have this, yet uh, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? Now, listen, a lot of theologians have debated that through years about who are the Nicolaitans. What most theologians believe, the Nicolaitans were started by the guy by the name of Nicholas. Nicholas was one of the first seven deacons of the church there in Ephesus. But something happened to Nicholas. His love grew cold, wandered away from God, and he came to the place to where he says, you know what? Freedom in Christ. You can live however you want. God doesn't care what you do with your body. God doesn't care what you do with your life. God doesn't care about any of that because God is a forgiving God. Fact is, a, a, a historian in their day, Clement of Alexandria, I'll just quote, this is what he said about the Nicolaitans, they abandoned themselves to pleasures like goats. And he's describing gross sexual sin. He's describing this idea that the Nicolaitans would say that God does not care about your sex life. God does not care with what you do with your body. You can determine that for yourself. So the Nicolaitans were this group of people that would say, you know what? Christianity works with my lifestyle, not my lifestyle working with Christianity. There's a big difference, right? I kind of diet that way. I, um, <laughs> a few years ago, a few years ago, I, I had a physical and some, some of my, some of my, numbers came back kind of bad. And so my doctor put me on like the, the, uh, the Mediterranean diet. I don't know if you know anything about the Mediterranean diet, but Satan developed that diet. <laughs> and it literally comes from the pit of hell. When my doctor showed me like the food tree, right? I'm like, doc, where, where's the red meat? It is like not on there. It is like not on there. And so he says, well, if you want to live longer and not need, you know, you're going to have to go on the Mediterranean diet. And so I tell people I'm on the Mediterranean diet. And one night, Karen and I were out to dinner with a couple. And, 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 and so I told them, yeah, I'm on the Mediterranean diet. And they're looking at my plate and looking at me confused. And, and so we get home, and Karen says, hey, you probably shouldn't tell anybody ever again you're on the Mediterranean diet. <laughs> and I go, I'm on the diet. She goes, no, you're not. I says, I'm on the diet because that's what my doctor recommended, and I want to live longer, and I'm on the diet. She says, you're not on the diet. I says, I'm on the diet. I just make my diet work with my lifestyle. <laughs> that's what the Nicolaitans did with Christianity. 
said, you know what we do with Christianity? We bring Christianity in. We make it, we make it agree with our lifestyle. We just make it agree with our lifestyle, not our lifestyle agreeing with Scripture. Or, and so Jesus is like, good for you guys. You guys stood against the legalist and you stood against the liberals. You stood against group, both groups, the group that had rules upon rules upon rules and the group that says there are no rules. Just do whatever you want to do. Verse 4, he says, this is the problem, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lamps down from its place. Unless you repent, yet you do have this. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear, hear, uh, to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So now he's telling them, guess what? Your love has grown cold. You have no passion. Something has happened. Even if it's, it may in this, be in this battle with the legalists and liberals, I don't know. But he said something has happened. You were once vibrant. Your, your faith at one time was white hot for God. You came into, Christ, in, into Christianity. You were serving him. You were active in the local church. You were passionate. But something has happened, and you have lost your passion. You have walked away from your first love. And he gives them three things to do. And listen, let me tell you, this works with marriage, and this works with churches as well. He said, remember, repent, and do. Remember and repent and do. If you have fallen out of love with God, if you have fallen out of love with a spouse, if you have fallen out of love with a profession, he says, do these three things. The first thing is remember. It's like I said earlier, it means to keep on remembering. Keep on remembering how it used to be. And I remember back to when Karen and I fell in love. And that was like many, many years ago. And we could, we could spend the day together. And then I'd drop her off at her apartment. And I'd go to my apartment. And as soon as I'd walk in, that was back in the days before cell phones, right? We had to deal with a phone that was like attached to the wall back in those days. And so I'd go home, and I'd pick up the phone, and then we'd talk for hours, right? We'd just talk for hours, like, no, you say goodbye, no, you say goodbye, no, you say You know that whole deal? <laughs> I remember when Karen and I, we hadn't been dating long, and she went back home to New York, and my parents were, had a condo at Galveston Island, so I drove down to Galveston Island and spent the weekend with them one, early one morning. Uh, I went out and sat on the dock of the bay, you know, watched the waves roll out and watched the waves roll in again, that whole deal. And all of a sudden, my little brother comes running down and says, hey, Karen's on the phone for you. And, and I go, oh, oh, okay, really? And, and he goes, yeah, she's on hold. I said, she's on hold. That was back in the days. Remember, you paid extra for long distance? It was like, it was like $100 a minute. And I'm like, oh, my, she's on hold. And so I didn't like tell her, hey, tell her I'll call her tomorrow. I'm too busy. I'm watching the ra waves roll in. You know what I did? I jumped up. I ran in. Why? To talk to her. I mean, I remember, you remember, if, listen, if you have fallen out of love with God, remember what it was like when you first met him. And you couldn't believe you were forgiven of sins, and you couldn't wait to find a place to serve and connect with the body and just serve him. What was it like when you first were starting to date? And then he says, remember that. And then he says, repent. And repent means keep on repenting. It means to change one's mind that changes your actions. Repentance is not just something. I think sometimes in the church we're so confused. Repentance is not just something we do at salvation. Repentance is something we do continually. 
We continually change our mind. We continually say, I need to align my behavior with your word, right? That's what repentance is. And so we come to the place and we acknowledge. We acknowledge how far we've fallen. And then he says, he says, remember, repent, and then he says, do. This is so important. Do the works you did at first. And this is just a huge, this is just a huge biblical principle. You act your way into the new way of feeling. You don't feel your way into a new way of acting. If you wait till you feel like it, it'll never happen because feelings come and go. I hear this all the time. Well, you know what? When I feel like following God passionately again, then I'll do it. When I feel like loving my spouse again and spending time with them and connecting with them, then I'll... Listen, if you wait for your feelings, you will never do it. You never feel your way into a new way of acting. What the Scripture says, you act your way into a new way of feeling. And guess what? Your feelings will follow your actions. And this is what he's saying. He says, you come to that place. If you've fallen out of love with a spouse, if you've fallen out of love with God, do the things you did at first. And then he gives a warning. Verse 5, he gives a warning. He says, and if you don't do this, if you don't do this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You know what he's saying? If you don't fall back in love with one another, you might lose your marriage. You might lose that relationship. If you don't fall back in love with God, listen, your salvation is, is safe and secure in him. But you may lose your connection with your church. You may lose some things that were once very vital to you. Now listen, then verse 7, he gives this encouragement that is like the encouragement of no other. And a lot of times we read over this and we just don't understand this. Is, so this is what he says. Look at this, verse 7. He said, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give them, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does that mean? One thing he's saying that if you have ears to hear right now, there is hope for you. If you have ears to listen, guess what? There's hope for you. You can, re you can rekindle that loving kind of, kind of feeling again. There is hope for you. He also says there's great fruit, the tree of life, for you. So what is the tree of life? The tree of life, there were, let's back up. There were two trees in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life and the tree of good and evil. Many of us know the story. Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree of good and evil. And when they did, it opened up their eyes to sin. Not only did Adam and Eve sin, they were dumb about it. They chose the wrong tree. They literally chose the wrong tree. So they chose to eat of the tree of good and evil. And the tree of life is eternal life. So you know what God did in his graciousness? God replanted the tree of life from the Garden of Eden to heaven. The tree of life is waiting in heaven for you and is waiting in heaven for me. And one day we're going to eat of the tree of life, eternal life, speaking of heaven. That is the goodness of God. Now, on Friday, Karen and I, we were, we were riding our mountain bikes down the Arkansas River Trail. 
And so we're, we're at that point, we're beside the, the Arkansas River. And I'm watching all these geese, you know, like, like fly in and, you know, everything. And I, and I just had this thought. I just, one, I had a thought that, you know what? Those, those geese, this is not, Colorado is not their home, right? They're just passing through. Their, their home is Canada. I mean, they're going home. And I said, that's us as believers. This is not our home. We, listen, we're just passing through. We're just passing through. And our home, you know what our home? Our home has the tree of life, eternal life that we're going to eat from. And it is waiting for us. And because of that, when we understand this is not our home, because of that, we, we rejoice always. We pray constantly. We give thanks for everything. For this is God's will for us. And we don't stifle the Spirit. And we hold on to what is good. We test what is good. And we stay away from evil because there is a tree of life that awaits us. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?